Hello, listening audience, and thank you for coming back and downloading yet again another version of the Noggin Notes podcast. I don't know if it's a version, actually. It's, I guess, an episode. Not a version. Could be an edition, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, today's version, edition, and or episode is brought to you by Audible, and we're super proud to have Audible as a sponsor. Audible's an Amazon company, and Right now, it's offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership if you go to audible.com slash noggin notes. I did it, and it was really cool. I got to go through a survey, a uh, very brief, like five or six-question survey that they um, they asked some some general questions about what I like and uh, my interests, and it was, it was kind of fun. And then they crafted a list of uh, potential titles that I, I want to download or, or that I could want to download based on just my, my personal preferences through that survey. It was pretty awesome. So among the unmatched inventory of audiobooks on Audible, uh, they decided to help me out by paring it down to my own uh, personal desires. And uh, lo and behold, there's some stuff in here that actually looks like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. So with your uh, Audible trial, you get a free audiobook and two Audible originals. Uh, again, audibletrial.com slash noggin notes. And um, if even if you decide not to continue after the after signing up, you get to keep your audiobook and your two originals. So uh, go to audibletrial.com slash noggin notes and sign up. It's free. Uh, you get a 30 day trial. And if you're like me and you drive a lot, spend a lot of time in the car, um, or just uh, wandering around the house doing chores. I think that listening to audiobooks in your downtime instead of just listening to music is so much more enriching. Uh, what you know, Noggin Notes exists to enrich and educate your noggin on many topics, mostly psychology, mental health, uh, emotional functioning, spirituality. But you can listen to an audiobook and enrich your noggin that way also, and it's uh, it's great. Now, why why Audible? Audible content has, a, like I said, an unmatched selection of audiobooks, but also original stuff, uh, shows, news, comedy uh, from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. I love it. I think it's great. Uh, I love that it's custom tailored to me uh, so that I don't have to sit there and sift through a bunch of stuff I'm never going to read uh, or, in this case, listen to. So go to audibletrial.com slash nogginnotes, sign up for your free trial, and take it from there. We're also sponsored by Zephyr Wellness. It's a company I co-own with my co-owner, Lindsay Bell, in Reno and Sparks, Nevada. We are proud to serve Northern Nevada, regardless of insurance or ability to pay, because we host graduate students at our company, and it's something that I'm really proud of. Um, check out ZephyrWellness.org for more information. And without further delay, this podcast is about understanding the treatment process. There's a, a process by which we all uh, go through, and uh, I guess through which we all go, so I have active voice and not passive voice, and I'm not splitting my infinitives. There's a treatment process in healthcare, and I attempt to outline that so that you're a little bit better informed when you go into care. And if you're a clinician listening to this, definitely stay tuned, because I think that what comes out of my mouth is some pretty good stuff, and I think that you can listen to it and uh, learn something. So as I laugh at my own uh, self-aggrandizement, um, please Sit back and relax and enjoy our version of an audiobook called The Noggin Notes Podcast. And hey, while you're at it, tell a friend. Before we start this podcast, I wanted to do something in the spirit of transparency uh, because I think it's it's useful to the, to the audience, especially being that I've focused so much on emotional functioning. I had something happen just a few minutes ago 
where I spoke for about 28 minutes of some of the best podcasting content I think that's ever come out of my mouth into a microphone that was not recording. And when I clicked stop and realized that I did not have any content recorded, I about lost my mind. And I thought, hold on a second, Jake, you, you teach emotional functioning and emotional tolerance for a living. Uh, what, what lesson is there in this? So I went through my, my, um, my little hierarchy of emotions and I thought I'm feeling angry. <laughs> now, what does anger do? Anger motivates to make change typically. What change can I make? Well, I can assur- I can assure you that from this point forward, I will absolutely double check like I did before I I started talking to make sure the record button actually got pressed and I didn't just tap something and it didn't register on the uh on the computer. So there's my motivation moving forward. Um, But what also was going on underneath the anger, because I always teach that anger comes secondarily to something else, was disappointment. I I was sad. I was very, very disappointed that I spent a half hour of my time accomplishing essentially nothing. Uh, but then I did a little bit deeper digging and realized that, first of all, there are, <laughs> there are many times in my life where I've wasted way more than a half an hour uh, on something far less productive. And then that got me thinking, well, what was the productivity that was accomplished through this quote-unquote wasted 28 minutes? And what was accomplished was it I got to practice all this stuff in advance. So uh, essentially, for those of you who don't know, I'll give you a little peek behind the curtain here. I sit down at this microphone, and I just start talking. And uh, this is usually how I conduct presentations and trainings and, and so forth. I don't have any notes. Uh, if I do prepare something ahead of time, it may be uh, you know, three or four bullet points of stuff I want to I hit so that I don't forget. But um, I don't. I just, I just free, freelance it or freelance it, free, free wing it, whatever. I, I go off the cuff. And so replicating what I was saying was, is very challenging because I get into a zone and I just start going. So... Uh, I hope that that helps somebody along the way that, uh, you know, even those of us who are professionals who do this for a living and, you know, sometimes get paid to do it, uh, we can we can screw up and we can succumb to anger. So I took a few minutes, I, I had some lunch, and uh, I came back after I simmered down and I went through those those mental exercises of, of uh, validating my own emotions, realizing where it originated, and then tolerating the, the wave of both the anger and the disappointment. And then uh, I wanted to share it. And I think what what really, un, I guess what what underpins all this is that um, there's a fear component, and that fear is uh, so fear is when a threat or a, a danger is present. Well, what's the threat or a danger of of the fear that I'm feeling? Well, it's it's the fear that uh, I'll do it again and I'll make another mistake. And what's the, what's the threat or the danger there? Well, that I'll waste more time. You know, there's a there's a real threat there. Um, it's not to, to personal safety or anything, but it's to the resources that I have and what's our chief resource that we all possess time. So I don't want to waste any more time. And so the, the fear I think is going to compel me to make sure that the record button is pressed. Uh, anger motivates me to, to change my, my laziness and just assuming that when I tap the mouse pad, it's, it's going to click, uh, and, and I want to make sure that. And so, uh, therefore I avoid further disappointment in the future. So there's your, your little emotional, uh, encapsulation, but Anyway, now that that's over, let's get on with the real podcast. Okay, everybody who's attended a counseling session in your life, raise your hand. Great. And if you're driving, please put that hand back on your wheel. Uh, everybody who has attended counseling for a really long time, raise your other hand. Thank you. And anybody who thinks that they've attended counseling for a little bit longer than they probably needed to, 
uh, raise both hands. And if you're driving, don't do that. Just raise your eyebrows. Good, good, good. Uh, thank you. So I'm bringing this up today because I wanted to highlight the necessity for staying in treatment and counterbalance it against the necessity to leave treatment. Where might this originate in my little brain? Well, recently in a series of supervision uh, sessions that I conducted with my interns and my students, it became increasingly apparent that we as clinicians are very poor at determining when people need to depart treatment and be discharged, as well as when they need to continue treatment. So, what arise, uh, arised, making up words as I go, that's fine. Uh, what arose in our conversations was um, sometimes in clinical work, we get stuck in this uh, ongoing dialogue about uh, people's problems and problem areas and different symptoms and, and uh, trying to, to fix them all. When what we should be doing is having conversations about imparting skill sets and insight and knowledge and expanded awareness of, of one's personal capacities so that the clients can move forward and solve their own problems free of the professional interventions that, that we offer as you know licensed clinicians. So what I had to do with my, my interns and my students was I said, okay, let's, let's look at our clients. And I, ju I just had them imagine uh, you know, a, a given case uh, or cases. And I said, all right, picture, picture that person. When they came into treatment, what was their original stated problem area? Uh, and then what, what goal did you, did you help them set for themselves? And then what objectives to that goal uh, did they choose or did you choose along with them? And then I said, where are they now? And can you articulate this on a piece of paper? Now, the purpose for this is to highlight the importance of treatment planning. So in our world, we have uh, what's called a treatment plan. And this, this should pr be present in all of healthcare. So if you go to the doctor with a cold, uh, you know, this, I'm getting very pedantic here. But, um, but if you go to the doctor with a cold and it won't go away, the doctor says, you know, here's your treatment plan. Take vitamins, get some rest, drink lots of fluid. Um, they don't probably write that down in a log, but, but we in mental health do. We're compelled to write that down in a log somewhere, and I'll get to that in a minute. Meanwhile, what I want to do is give you an overview about how a treatment plan comes into being and why it's important. So uh, I'll start with physical health care. If you walk into the doctor's office, uh, you have a stated problem. In, in the case I just mentioned, it was, a, it was a cold. It's sniffling, sneezing, achy, stuffy head, fever, uh, that starts to sound like a medicine commercial, but the, the doctor hears those symptoms and they hear that you have a problem going on and the doctor will um, take those symptoms into consideration as uh, a treatment plan is formulated. We, we do the same thing in our field where you'll come in and you'll have a stated problem and we will conduct an interview uh, to, to gather all the symptoms and we'll, we'll take note of all the forces in your life that may uh, be contributing to this at the present moment. And we will wrap that into a simplified statement of what the goal is that you hope to accomplish. So we'll go back to, to the, to the cold. You go into the doctor's office, say, I'm, you know, sniffling, sneezing, achy, stuffy head fever. Uh, doctor says, all right, here's your prescription. And the prescription may not be a medicine. It may be go home and rest, drink lots of fluids and, and, uh, take some vitamins. For, uh, for, for another example of physical health, uh, and I always go to knee because I have, I have a knee issue. Um, hey, doc, my knee hurts. The doctor says, all right, I'm going to gather a bunch of information about you. 
what did you do to it? When did it happen? Uh, and then they may do some some physical tests. They'll you know make you extend the knee. They'll they'll push on your leg, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, they may order more uh, information gathering in the form of an X-ray or a an MRI, magnetic resonance image. And based on the information that those things produce, the, the X-ray may show some bone problems. The MRI may show some ligament problems. From that point, they will have gathered enough information, and they will say. Here's, here's what I see you need to do. The problem is, uh, you know, torn muscle or torn ligament. We're going to operate uh, and we'll fix it. We might cut some stuff out. We might put some stuff back together. Or maybe they'll say uh, your, tr- your, uh, your goal is to get healthy, right? And the treatment plan is the, the operation or it's, or it's just a rest. Maybe, you know, ice, wrap, stay off of it. Uh, we don't need to do surgery. You need to, you need to do whatever. So, um at that point, they, they may refer to uh, another person to take care of that, maybe a physical therapist. And the physical therapist will say, okay, your, your problem is you just came from knee surgery. Uh, the goal is to get you back fully strengthened again. And the steps to that goal would be the objectives, which is um, calisthenics and light work with uh, rubber bands and you know, light weight lifting and maybe some bicycle, whatever it is. Okay, so in the mental health world, we take the exact same concept. You walk in and you say what your problem is, and then we do an interview to gather a bunch of information. Now, we, unfortunately, we don't have a way to look into the mind yet, um, so we do that through um, conversation, and we'll ask you things about your your family history and your childhood and uh, how your relationship is with your significant others, whether you have a military history, what your work history is like, what you're doing now for a job, whether or not you like it, do you have kids. Uh, what are your hobbies? Uh, so we'll gather a bunch of information. And from that information, we will determine a treatment plan to take care of the the stated problem uh, that you walked in the door complaining about. That treatment plan will contain a goal to deal with the problem, and below the goal will be objectives to the goal. So we'll take, for example, a couple who comes in and says, you know, we're, we're having trouble communicating. We argue all the time. And I will gather that information that I just laid out for you. And I'll say, all right, it sounds like you guys uh, are, you know, we're both raised in families that expected everybody to read each other's minds. And so now you're doing that to each other. And we all know that that's not possible unless you're a mind reader for the purposes of like a magic show. Um, (laughs) And then then it's your professional job to do that to entertain people. But but for all intent and purpose, uh, most people can't read minds. And so if you have an expectation that your mind is to be read by the other person and then not only read but read accurately and responded to, chances are pretty good that you're going to be disappointed and that disappointment is going to be covered over by anger and the anger comes out in the form of arguments and insistence that the, your spouse perform what you want them to perform without you ever having to tell them. Okay, so we can work on that. Uh, and the, the objectives to the goal, the goal would be improved communication. The objectives might be uh, active listening. Uh, validation of emotions, the other person's experience, uh, maybe um, uh, understanding one's emotional functioning. Or uh, understanding one's emotional functioning may be a separate goal, and objectives to that goal are learn the 10 uh, emotions as researched by Carol Izzard, uh, validate them in oneself, know where they originate in your body. So there's three objectives to yet a second goal. So the idea here is that you you have this plan of treatment to uh, conquer the, the problem that you brought into the session. And, and I use that, that word conquer very specifically because I believe, and I have to believe this because it gives, gives hope, 
that all mental illness and mental struggles, psychological distress, can be conquered. They can be overcome. They are not permanent. They are temporary. If they were permanent and there was nothing you could do about it, I would effectively be out of a career. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. The idea is that in the physical world, uh, we may have some permanent uh, disfiguration of some sort. Uh, maybe you, you burn part of your skin on your arm and it's, it's just always going to be a scar. Um, but you can learn to use your arm again. Okay. It may not be in quite the same way. And that may be a, per- a perfectly appropriate analogy to mental illness where you may experience some trauma and you're, you're quote unquote permanently scarred in a metaphorical sense, but you can learn to, to live with it and deal with it and move on from it so that it doesn't affect you. And I think that there is a small um, stripe of our community in both the clinical world as well as the, the, the client world that believes that mental illness of certain aspects is not to be overcome. It is merely to be uh, tolerated and that s- certain things are permanent. I, I can't believe that because philosophically it doesn't align with how I believe the mind to be, which is that you're born clean, pure, perfect, and intact, and then uh, somewhere along the way environment shapes you into behaving a certain way and if that certain way that you behave is something you don't like or is not effective then you can learn differently how to behave um if 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 somebody happens to believe that they're born a certain way and whatever they're dealing with is quote unquote permanent then i can't establish a treatment plan for that per- person because ultimately the goal would not exist there is no goal if there's nothing to be overcome there's nothing to be changed and there wouldn't be objectives to the goal. It would it would be nonsensical. It's an, it's a non-starter. Say so, you know, hey, uh, Jake, I'm I'm I was born permanently angry, and there's no other emotion I can feel except anger. I'd be like, all right, cool. There's no reason for you to be in my office then, because there's nothing I can help you with. Uh, if that's your belief system, and I and I emphasize belief system because we don't have any scientific evidence that suggests that people are born angry. We don't have any scientific evidence that suggests people are born anxious or depressed or addicted. Um, apart from, you know, those who may have been exposed in utero to substances and may have a, a predisposition to using, uh, if, if somebody's born, uh, to a mother who is using methamphetamine, if you never show the kid methamphetamine, he's not going to use it. Uh, he may have some, some cravings for something, but we're not going to get him addicted if we never show him the substance. So that's what I mean by environment. If the environment is such that uh, the person is never exposed to those factors that could trigger the the, the predisposition, then it's not going to happen. Uh, and similarly, if you're if you're born into a, a crappy environment that teaches you violence, uh, that's fine. That may be all you, you know until somebody offers an alternative, and then you have a choice to make: uh, violence or peace. And if you choose violence after being introduced to the option of peace, that's a, that's on you. But to say that it's it's permanent and you're just simply born that direction, uh, that's something I, I simply can't can't get on board with because our our entire profession would cease to exist. No one would be able to be helped, and no one would ever change. So I I just choose not to believe that um, people cannot be helped. And if you're one of those people out there listening, says you know, sorry Jake, I I just don't I disagree with you. Uh, then I. I would wonder why you're listening to the podcast probably because it's, it's very hopeless. It's very limiting and it deprives people of their personal agency and, um, it creates a victim mentality and it's, it, it feeds into a learned helplessness. So I just, I just don't, don't get on board with that. I don't believe in taking hope away from, from folks. And, um, so all that being said, 
if you come in with this uh, communication issue, you're the couple, we'll stick with that metaphor, for example. So, so um, for now, for the example. So if you're this couple that comes in with a communication issue and, um, and we set a treatment goal, what we want to do is, is we want to set a time frame also. We don't want to keep you hanging on in perpetuity because it's, um, it's equally unethical for me to keep you hanging on in treatment as I am the one who's solving your problems. So uh, pretty much universally across all uh, healthcare disciplines, we have a, an ethical code uh, depending on what, I mean, regardless of whether you're a dentist or a doctor, um, you know, primary care physician, psychotherapist, social worker, doesn't matter. Almost all of us have, have something in our ethical codes that says something to the effect of you only continue treating people so long as it's reasonably clear that the client is benefiting. Um, now, we could debate about what benefit means and how a client benefits because I know some people who do some mental acrobatics to get to the, the conclusion that they're, quote-unquote, benefiting the client by continuing care on a weekly basis for years upon years upon years. Well, my pushback on that is that it's it's equally unethical to do that because you're violating their autonomy to act on their own behalf and be free of the the compulsory nature of counseling as the solution to their problems. And I did a podcast recently on the, on the ethics of counseling. And if you want more on that, go, go ahead and go back and listen to it. But at no point should the beneficence of counseling, meaning the, the, the help that people get override the autonomy of the individual to choose his or her own life, uh, free of the, the weekly psychotherapy or the monthly or whatever it is. Um, people, people should have the ability to learn the skills on their own to solve their own problems as they move through life without the continued intervention of the professional licensed clinician and as such the, the billing of the insurance and so forth. That's, uh, that's just not right. So we want to we make it time limited. Now time limited can be a variety of things. It could be a number of sessions. It could be a number of sessions over a period of time. Uh, you know, like six over six weeks, or maybe it's, uh, you know, six over 12 weeks if you're going biweekly, or it can just be, you know, 90 days or, or six months or whatever you want to set. But the idea is that it's time limited because it forces both the client and the clinician to come together and work very hard at conquering whatever it is they need to conquer so that the client can move on with life and not have this appointment hanging out there, you know, forever. Now, I understand that some people have lifetimes worth of um, chaos and, and trauma history and just, just junk that they need to work through. Um, that would not be an appropriate way to, to approach one of those, those folks. So uh, w- for the clinicians listening, if you, if you happen to be new to the field, uh, I'm not encouraging you to take somebody who's you know, 34, 35 years of age and has never known peace and tranquility and say, I'm going to fix you in six weeks because <laughs> that, that sets a false expectation and that's, that's really <laughs> disingenuous. Um, but it also puts way too much pressure on you to to undo what has been done over three decades uh, with this person. So those, you know, the, the more severely impacted folks who have, you know, have a lifetime of struggles, you want to, you want to be, be mindful of that and just say, hey, settle in for now and, and we'll assess as we go. But you still set a treatment plan. You still set a goal. You still set objectives to the goal. It may just take a little longer to, to achieve than the, um, you know, healthy functioning person who just uh, has a blind spot, for example. Um, if you do set those those parameters, though, what you want to do is you want to be mindful of, of how quickly you're going through the treatment plan. And this is how I started the podcast. You know, I, I asked everybody to raise their hand if they fell into a certain category. 
And my, my idea here is that if you're one of those people who maybe got discharged a little too early from, from care, I want to invite you back if you have continued to struggle. Because here's what, what often happens. We go through our treatment, and we'll take that couple, for example, that came into, came into the office with the communication problems. I might assess them as saying, you know, uh, both of you come from, you know, backgrounds that were invalidating and told you to read each other's minds. Okay, we get through that. And we help them to validate each other, and we get to maybe you know the eighth session. I might have told them at the outset, "Hey, I, th- I think eight sessions will be good for you guys. Um, come every week." So we get to session number eight. Things are things are sailing. And I say, "How are we doing with with the stated problem uh, that that got you in the door?" And they go, "You know, Jake, we're doing really really well." Uh, in fact, uh, session number three was the turning point. For the last five weeks, we've been amazing. And uh, no problems, no arguments. We're getting along great. The children are happy. Um, everything's well. Now, I as a clinician may be tempted to, to discharge them at that time. And what I want to be aware of is the very high likelihood that once I do that, uh, environmental factors may shift in their life. So I want to be always checking in too. Maybe part of this, uh, five week period of, of bliss is uh, a honeymoon simply because they are doing something new and it's so attractive and it's so inviting that it's just awesome for them to do it. So that they're aware of the, the tendency to argue and they don't argue and they, and they validate instead and they lead with compassion and so forth. But they, the new pattern hasn't yet ingrained. And at some point the honeymoon ends and discharge may end that honeymoon. So what will invariably happen in in any stage of recovery is there will be a a backslide of some sort. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar, there's a a trend line we want to follow when you're recovering from anything, whether it's uh, substance abuse or or violence or or just argumentation or anxiety or whatever. So you're going to picture it like the stock market. The stock market goes up and down and up and down and up and down and mostly up. We want it to go mostly up. So if you're familiar with statistics, there's something called a trend line, and it an- analyzes the trend, and it overlays the ups and the downs, and you want to look at that trend line and see that it's mostly going up. Well, at some point or another, there's going to be a, a, a backslide that feels a lot more severe than the other dips, and at that point, it's really, um, it's really critical that the individual who's experiencing the, the backsliding or the slip or the, we won't call it a relapse because a relapse uh, these days is usually uh, associated with a, a full-blown return to prior um, level of, of use or, or, um, or dysfunction. So it's not a relapse. It's just, it's just a slip. But it's a bigger slip than some of the other ones. And we want to be able to wrap the person up and say, hey, hey, that's okay. This is expected. This is typical. Um, keep moving forward. Now, here's what happens if the, the client's discharged when that slip happens. Discharge psychologically sends a message that you're, you're, you've conquered what you conquered and the, and the goal is attained. Um, and if they're in that spot and they experience the slip, what may happen is they're too embarrassed to come back into care because in their minds they think they, and you can't see my air quotes, but they should have, and I'm putting air quotes around should, they should have been able to navigate it better than they did. And so they don't want to come back and, and be embarrassed and admit to their clinician, their, their counselor, that they had a blowout argument or whatever. And I'm saying that's okay. Not only is it okay, it's expected. Because if it doesn't happen, chances are kind of strong that you're you're just white-knuckling it through and avoiding emotional distress or the tension. 
We don't want to do that. We want to face life in all of its uh, fullness, and some of that fullness involves disappointment. It, it involves uh, argumentation. Uh, we just don't want patterns of it, and the pattern of the argumentation is what brought this couple in, uh, if we're sticking with my, my metaphorical example. If I've discharged them, they may hesitate to come back, but here's what I probably should do. I should probably say, that's awesome. Five weeks of sustained success is really good. I want to see you in a month. We'll do it. We'll do a check back. And in that month, what'll probably happen is that dip, that, that backsliding. And they will get through it because there's an appointment on the calendar. And sometimes they might be tempted to call and move up the appointment. And that's an opportunity for me to say, no, no, I want you guys to get through this. I'll see you in, in a month as planned, not two weeks. And they push through it. And what that teaches them is a form of distress tolerance. It teaches that they can move through it. They don't have to bail out and they don't have to use me as their uh, parachute in an emergency. They can push through it and they come back and check in and they say, you know what? I We, we had an argument. We had a fairly major blow up. It sucked. Uh, he slept on the couch. She got the bed. Um, but it was only one night and we were able to tolerate it and make amends and use the skills that we, ta- we were learned. Uh, we were taught and that we learned and make it all well again. So here we are one month out of, uh, you know, the, the weekly treatment and things are going pretty well. And I say, all right, great. I'll see you again in another month. And what I'm doing is I'm prescribing a formulaic, uh, treatment episode based on their individual presentation. Now I might not do this with everybody. I might go to, to biweekly and then go to monthly. Um, but in this particular case, I just said, Hey, let's go month. And then we'll go another month. And if and if by the, the second time I've gone monthly, now we're talking three full months of sustained uh, accomplishment. They're good. Uh, I, I probably should discharge them and say, you know, good luck and God bless. Another temptation we have, though, as clinicians, and I want the clients listening to be aware of this as well as the clinicians, is we have a temptation to look for other problems. So they came in with communication issues. Uh, we, we solved the communication issue. And as systemic thinkers, we all should know by now that there are always other factors going on. There's always something to be addressed. Uh, It may be uh, parenting. It may be individual analysis of family history and making peace with, uh, you know, a mother who, you know, with whom we're at odds or or an estranged uh, father or something like that. That's not my job to bring up to them. And I think as clinicians, we're really tempted a lot of times to believe that it's our job to make them look at another problem area uh, because we are uncomfortable with their life. And that's highly unethical as well because what I'm essentially doing is I'm, again, violating their autonomy by forcing them to look at something through my lens, not theirs, as potentially problematic and compelling them into care again. Uh, when things are going well, they're going well. Let's let's just leave it alone. Um, I don't get to judge somebody else's level of functioning. Uh, they get to judge their own. And if it's problematic, the, the door's always open for them to return. I don't want to look at that and go, oh, man, I, I think these people need to work on you know reconciling their issues with their kids or whatever. If they think everything's fine, that's that's perfectly acceptable. People lead all kinds of different lives. And it's not for me as a clinician to, to make them look at this thing and suggest that they need treatment for it. Uh, far from it, actually, because not only am I violating their autonomy, because I have a power differential over them of being the, you know, quote unquote, expert that they're, you know, from whom they're seeking help. Uh, I also may inv- involuntarily expose them to something that they didn't need to see. 
and now they can't get it out of their consciousness because once you become aware you can no longer become unaware so if i've made them aware of this potential problem area whether it's you know histor- historical family conflict or or uh, a you know job distress or dissatisfaction or what something they didn't mention along the way as being problematic what i've done is i've exposed them to this now and i've actually introduced more distress into their life that they didn't ask for and they didn't even notice. So now what I've done is I've, I've violated the ethic of non-maleficence, which is don't do any harm, meaning don't hurt anybody. I've, I've accidentally hurt them by making them look at this, at this problem area that only was a problem to me, not to them. So uh, this can go for anything, you know, maybe through the course of those uh, tw- 12 or weeks or whatever that I was treating them, including the, the, the eight initial uh, sessions, uh, maybe the the husband says, uh, yeah, you know, I've got a home brewing hobby and, and I drink, you know, three to four beers a night, uh, over a five hour period. Uh, maybe to my ears, if I, if I'm a non drinker, or maybe if I'm in recovery myself, I hear that and I go, holy cow, that's a lot of beer to consume, but it's not a problem to him. It's not a problem to his wife and it's not a problem to his kids and he's fully functioning and he's just fine. For me to introduce that as possibly being a problem, I've done him a disservice and I've been unjust because it's not a problem to him. It's a problem to me. So I want to be mindful of that as a clinician. And as clients, if you're listening to this and, and your your therapist is, is forcing problems onto you that need to be solved, that's a really good opportunity for you to say, hold on, I, we weren't here for that. We didn't come in here for that. Um, and if they continue to insist that you, you deal with that, even though you don't want to, it's probably a good indicator that you need to, to maybe terminate services of that person and go find somebody else. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, advocating people get into arguments with their clinician. Uh, sometimes some, we, we have some very good perspective, but it's the idea that we would force it upon you. Uh, that, that is the rub. I, I don't want to, I don't want to force anything upon somebody. So I may make a suggestion like, Hey, you know, do you, do you think the, the three to four homebrews a night is a, is a good habit for you to be in? If the, if the person pushes back and goes, yeah, I don't, I don't, I've never seen any distress from it. You know, looks at the wife. Wife goes, I don't have any problem with it. In fact, I I, I drink with you. Uh, then then it's my job as a clinician to back off and go. Oh, okay, my bad. Just checking, just testing the waters there, and and that's perfectly acceptable. Where it would be wrong is if I if I went forward and said, No, no, no. I I think you need to address this because that sounds like a lot to my ears. Well, pause right there. It's my ears, not anybody else's ears, and and I don't get to have that opinion. Um, you know, and then I say, ah, come back next week and we're, you know, glad we got the communication thing out of the way, but come back next week. We're going to talk about your alcohol consumption. That's highly unethical. And it's a good way to, to push away a client possibly forever from the profession. Um, because now I've judged them. Uh, I haven't been non-judgmental. I haven't welcomed them in and been uh, neutral. I've forced my belief system upon them and that's, that's not fair. And it, and it gives the entire profession a black eye. So, um, in summation, I, if you're a clinician listening to this, uh, I want you to be mindful of when to terminate treatment and when to sustain treatment. We want to make sure that we're there as people push through their success because we, in, we inevitably know that there's going to be a major backslide and we want to be there to support them without coercing them into more treatment than they asked for. And if you're a client, be aware that um, even though you may see some very good early returns, Continue seeing your your clinician for a little bit longer to make sure it sustains. Similarly to the uh, to the physical therapist who sets out a prescribed number of of uh, sessions to you know rehabilitate the the knee after surgery. 
they're going to do that 12 sessions and assume that you're doing your homework as they prescribe. And at the end of those 12 or those 10 or whatever they, they prescribe, they will then reassess and evaluate for strength and functioning and flexibility and all that. We'll do the same thing. We need to, we need to assess at the end of that, that originally stated time limit and see if you've hit your, your objectives and your goals. And if you haven't, it's a good opportunity to say, you know, what's not working here? Uh, if, if the client is not moving forward, it's incumbent upon me to meet them where they are and, and adjust my intervention strategy. So if I'm teaching emotional functioning and that's just not what they need, uh, they need something like um, you know, s- skills worksheets and more of a cognitive behavioral therapy model, then, then I might do that. I, it's incumbent upon me to, to change, not for the client to change because after all, they are paying me. I am the, the hired person to, to help them. Uh, remember the ethical codes and uh, remember your, your, uh, your obligation to only continue care if it's reasonably obvious that the client is benefiting. Now, in the beginning, I did say that I would, I would get back to why treatment planning is required. In our state codes in Nevada, and I got to believe this is uh, elsewhere as well, um, the Nevada Administrative Code, Chapter 641A, uh, subsection, I'm sorry, section 243, so it's 641A.243. Uh, it governs professional conduct for marriage and family therapists and clinical professional counselors. Uh, subsection 12, I believe it is, uh, states that we are responsible for maintaining a record of our treatment, and it should include an assessment and uh, treatment interventions, including a treatment plan, as well as case notes documenting how we do that. I also know that it's present in Chapter 641B, which is which governs the social workers. And although I didn't look at C, which governs uh, substance abuse counselors, I'm pretty sure it's there too, uh, because I think we all mirrored 641, no letter after it, just 641, which is the psychologist. And um, all the language is almost perfectly aligned. It's it's almost exactly uh, mirroring one another. And and again, I'm not familiar with other states. But I'm pretty sure that all other states require it, uh, as well as ethical codes require some record of what you've done with the person. So if you're a client listening to this, know that we are compelled by ethic and by law to keep a record of what it is that we do with you, how we go about it, and why we go about it. And those records are yours. If you want them, we cannot obstruct access unless we believe somehow it will do harm, say in the in the instance of a child who's in the middle of a a custody battle or something like that where we're working on um, recovery from trauma exposed to you know by one parent and then that parent wants to see the notes uh it it could be problematic but but in order to deny access we have to do it under very extreme circumstances we have to articulate very clearly in the in the case notes and in the in the file why we're not allowing those records to be released but those are very very rare in circumstances um, most often what happens is if you want access to your clients, uh, to your own records, I'm sorry, we just print them out and hand them over and, uh, or we fax them or what, whatever's a, a secure medium by which we do that. And if we believe that there's, um, there's something in there that could be problematic, we'll tell you up front because sometimes it's not necessary to get the entire, uh, treatment record. Um, for, for nothing else than you got a bunch of loose papers that could blow out of your window at any time. And somebody picks that up and sees that you have this, um, you know, this extensive trauma history that, you know, you didn't need to share with the world. Uh, we may actually ask you to 
accept a treatment summary in lieu of all those uh, momentary snapshots of case notes for every session because a treatment summary allows us to add context and nuance that's not present in some of those case note snapshots. Uh, that so don't be surprised if if you come in and say I, I need I need my treatment record. We push back a little bit and say, well, why do you need it, and whose eyes are going to fall on this? And then we'll review with you what's in that treatment record. Uh, but just know that by law, at least in Nevada, we are compelled to keep a treatment record, and that record belongs to you. Uh, it's I mean we'll keep a copy. Obviously, you don't just take it, and we don't have anything left. Um, but you're entitled to a copy of it, and. Um, and if you ever want to see that at any time, it's it's your right to access that so that you, too, can hold your clinician accountable. Uh, you say, you know, I came in here for anxiety treatment. Why are you talking about uh, why are you talking about my past and my dead dog? <laughs> well, OK, I should be able to articulate that for you. So I hope this helped. And in particular, I hope that if you were one of those people who uh, uh, raised your hand and or your eyebrows, you were able to assess. And uh, if you want to get back into care. Or, um, or terminate care because you realize that your, your problems are solved by and large, uh, then I, I hope this empowers you to do so. Um, if you have any feedback or, or even pushback, we'll accept your feedback and or pushback at info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org. In the meantime, I wish you all great mental wellness. Until next time, bye-bye.